Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, John Schwartz. John's new job is at The Intercept, where he has been doing a ton of wonderful reporting and blogging. He previously worked for Michael Moore's Dog Eat Dog Films and was research producer for Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story. He's contributed to many publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, and Slate, as well as NPR and Saturday Night Live. In 2003, he collected on a $1,000 bet that Iraq would have no weapons of mass destruction. Who knew? John Schwartz, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. David, hi. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. It's wonderful to have you on. Don't know why we haven't done it sooner. Have been uh, reading uh, great stuff you've been writing at The Intercept, which I recommend to everyone, uh, including uh, you wrote a review uh, of this new book called The Devil's Chessboard uh, and went off on some some related topics. Um, and I think I may have read your review before I went and grabbed the book and, and read it, uh, which I'm, I'm grateful for because it was well worth doing and people should get the devil's chessboard, but can you uh, can you describe what what this story was about and what interested you in it? Yeah, I would encourage everybody listening to this to go get the devil's chessboard. Uh, the full name is the devil's chessboard: Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the rise of America's secret government. And it's by David Talbot, who people probably know from Salon, which he founded, and. Talbot has said, and and you will really be able to tell this if you pick the book up, that he is writing not just a biography of Alan Dulles' public and private life, but really a biography of the U.S. national security state after World War II and how it took over the world. And it is really, really fascinating. It goes into all kinds of detail about a million little corners of history that I will admit uh, I knew nothing about in many cases. Like, I thought I knew most of the dreadful things that the U.S. government had did, and it turns out that I was completely wrong. Well, what, uh, what were some of the most dreadful things you didn't know about? One of the stories that I was not familiar with was uh, the story of Jesus uh, de Galindez. I hope that I'm pronouncing his name right, given that the United States killed him. Uh, he was a lecturer at Columbia University in New York, as well as an opponent of the uh, dictator of the Dominican Republic during the 40s and 50s. And uh, the dictator of the Dominican Republic despised him, uh, but unfortunately for uh, Galindez, uh, he was also, the dictator was, a good friend and ally of the United States, the CIA and Alan Dulles in particular. And someone, the story is not uh, completely clear, we'll never know the details for sure, but someone kidnapped uh, Glinda's from Manhattan and took him to an airfield on Long Island and flew him from there to the Dominican Republic where he was tortured and eventually, as far as it's possible to tell with these kinds of things, fed sharks. And it's actually even worse than that because the uh, dictator and the various people around him in his government were very concerned about 
the American who had flown the guy who they tortured and killed uh, to the Dominican Republic. So then they killed him. And then after that, they claimed that uh, the pilot had been killed by somebody else and arrested the guy who they claimed had killed the pilot. And then that guy somehow committed suicide in his cell. So it's just an incredibly lurid, awful story and demonstrates that really no one anywhere in the United States was uh, and perhaps still is safe from these people. Uh, indeed, it's not clear what exactly has changed since some of these horrors occurred. Um, but it, it seems to me in in U.S. society, uh, you know, boiling someone in oil and chopping them up and feeding them to sharks and so forth uh, is not quite as bad as anything Nazi. You know, if a Nazi were to do it, then it would be really, really bad. Uh, and so I, I think of particular interest to a lot of people would be the Nazi connections of Alan Dulles. Yeah, that's right. And uh, my theory about the United States and the hold that Nazis have over our imagination is that it all goes back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that Raiders of the Lost Ark comprises... Uh, essentially all of the history that many Americans know. And so they've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they know that the Nazis seem to be really, really bad guys. So if you tell them that something is connected with the, the Nazis, then they think, it's like, oh, well, those guys were really mean to Harrison Ford, so I hate them. I'm pretty sure the obsession in, uh, predates uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I think it may be a good summary, uh, as you say, of how Americans view history. Uh, and they view history uh, as... Uh, largely good and peaceful and tranquil until Nazism spontaneously generated out of nowhere uh, stood up against everything good about American values uh, and the United States with very little help from anyone else defeated it uh, and must go on defeating it from here to eternity. Uh, wh how, does, uh, how does the story of Alan Dulles's career uh, conflict with that? Yes, well, you really need to understand this to understand anything about politics in the United States, really world history. Because Alan Dulles, uh, together with his brother John Foster Dulles, were corporate lawyers uh, at the beginning of their career. And they represented many of the biggest corporations in the United States. They also had a significant international practice. And among the corporations that they represented overseas uh, were... German corporation. And so they represented you know, sort of U.S. multinationals that had interests in Germany, as well as uh, just German corporations. And when Hitler came to power, no one ever says this in polite society now, but when Hitler came to power, there were many sectors of the United States who thought this was pretty good news. And Alan Dulles and his brother John Foster were among them. Eventually, uh, Alan Dulles actually before his brother, decided that they would have to cut ties with Adolf Hitler, that things weren't going as well as they'd anticipated. But this was a, like, really, really late in the 30s. And while they cut formal ties, they did not really want to uh, leave all of this money on the table that they'd made from representing uh, the U.S. multinationals and the German corporations. So they kept in close touch with all of their former clients. And during the war, they did some things that I think many people would consider to be treason. Uh, they were supporting various factions of uh, Nazi Germany in various ways. And 
towards the end of World War II, Allendahl's actually tried to create a, a sort of separate piece uh, with Nazi Germany in Italy. Uh, Italian partisans had captured a uh, high-ranking Nazi official, and he actually sent people to rescue him because he didn't like... Yeah, Alan uh, Dulles sent people to rescue the Nazi official. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's described in great detail in David Talbot's book. And the reason Alan Dulles was doing this was that FDR had stated that the United States had a policy of, uh, of complete surrender, that the Nazis would have to surrender completely for the war to end. And part of the reason for that was to reassure the Soviet Union that we were not going to try to make a separate peace with Nazi Germany. And Alan Dulles, for sure, his brother probably as well, uh, didn't like that because they actually saw the Soviet Union as a bigger threat than Nazi Germany, and they would have been very happy to make a separate peace with them and then uh, sort of forge an alliance that they would then be able to use against the Soviet Union after the war. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Although Alan Dulles was not successful in, in what he tried to do in Italy in terms of making a formal separate peace, in effect, that is what happened after World War II, that the United States was very cozy with some of the worst remaining Nazis. Uh, these included uh, Reinhard Galen, who was the head of Nazi intelligence on the Eastern Front, which is where many of the uh, very worst Nazi atrocities happened, for sure. And Dulles was good friend with Reinhard Galen and made sure that he was able to survive the war, that he was not tried for war crimes, and then put him in charge of West Germany's intelligence service. And from that point on, you know, this very, very significant big-time Nazi was one of the CIA's closest allies in West Germany. We're speaking with John Schwartz, who writes at The Intercept. Uh, John, in your in your review of this book, uh, I mean, you could have gone any one of a thousand ways, and I think people uh, need to read the book, uh, The Devil's Chessboard, but you actually wrote about something I was unfamiliar with uh, that, and, and was not in the book at all, called The Safari Club. Can you tell people what that was? Yeah, <laughs> The Safari Club is this amazing piece of lost history. And the reason I brought it up is this, is that, you know, Alan Dulles, uh, you know, survives World War II, uh, manages to sort of cement this policy with the United States being allies with significant rep uh, remnants of Nazi Germany. Uh, then Alan Dulles becomes head of the CIA when Eisenhower is elected, stays uh, as head of the CIA for eight years, remains as head of the CIA when Kennedy is elected until Kennedy fires him. And during that time, uh, John Foster was Secretary of State. So you have these people who are at the very top of the U.S. government, and they believe that they know how the world should be run. And in fact, uh, Dulles, Alan Dulles, in his only run for office, was quoted as saying, Democracy only works if the so-called intelligence people, intelligent people make it work. You can't sit back and let democracy run itself. <laughs> and so the Dulles brothers had this very uh, straightforward view of how the world should work, and it should be run by them, and 
uh, just regular people shouldn't really have any say in it. And what happened uh, after Dulles' death in the 1970s, as many people may know, is that there were finally very significant investigations by the US uh, of the U.S. national security state by Congress. And finally, there was some light shed on what had been going on for the previous 25 years. All the governments that we'd overthrown, uh, MKUltra, which is also covered in the Devil's Chessboard, uh, this extremely ugly history that most Americans knew nothing about. So what happened then? Well, it became much harder from the mid-70s through the Carter administration, but that lasted until 1980, for this intelligence world to do all the things that it had done before. And that meant that there were lots of people who were sort of left in the lurch in various countries, uh, like Saudi Arabia and France and Iran, still then under the Shah, they had built alliances with the intelligence world in the United States and the U.S. right wing. And they were concerned that they weren't going to be able to have the United States helping them run the world anymore. And so they got together, uh, Saudi Arabia and France were the main players, and created something called the Safari Club. That was actually their own name. And the idea was that with the United States uh, not sort of taking its, its formal leading role, that they would get together and fund the things the United States had done previously. And that lasted from the mid-70s uh, until the election of Ronald Reagan. And in fact, it was in many ways uh, you know, very well known to the United States. It was approved in many ways by the United States. But the money didn't have to be appropriated by Congress, and that was the most significant difference, that uh, these people could just sort of do whatever they wanted uh, because they didn't have to get money from Congress. And what that demonstrates is that in this world, like, we have no say over what these people do. You know, we can have Congress investigate them, we can have Congress try to shut them down, but it doesn't matter. They just go get money from other places. And in fact, the same kind of thing happened during the 1980s when Congress tried to uh, shut down the Contras in Nicaragua in, same, in, uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, they just reran the same game plan as with the Safari Club. They went and got the money from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so, Although that one became a public scandal. Yes, that did also become, that did become a public scandal. That's much better known than the Safari Club. And... Uh, the Safari Club is amusingly uh, not known even to people who work for the New York Times or the Washington Post. The, uh, the guy who used to be the uh, Mideast Bureau Chief for the Washington Post was one, once asked about the Safari Club in an online chat and said he'd never heard of it. Was it known to Jimmy Carter? It almost certainly was, yeah. I mean, Carter's foreign policy was much more conservative and right-wing than most people understand now. I think that his relationship with them was almost certainly uh, a little more dicey than would eventually be the case with the Reagan administration, but he did know about them as far as anybody can tell. 
Yeah, it's an incredible story. I want to I want to back up in time again a little bit um, before we leave the Devil's Chessboard. Even though there's like 85 other topics, I hope we can get to in the next several minutes. But uh, but the the whole point of the Devil's Chessboard, this this book by Talbot, is I think to get to the assassination of Kennedy. Uh, and you know, much of the book is building up sort of the character and history of of Alan Dulles. But uh, the conclusion is all about the assassination of Kennedy, which it has him masterminding and coordinating from the CIA's training camp, the the farm there there near Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, and the case he makes seems to be in agreement with a lot of recent Kennedy assassination books, including Jim Douglas's and with uh, the, the so-called uh, deathbed confession by uh, Howard Hunt. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder what you make of of that case, which which seems to be really the point of the book. Yeah, it is largely the point of the book, that the whole book is building up to that. What I found most interesting, and for me personally newest about the book, was the information about the attempts actually on Charles de Gaulle's life uh, just in the couple of years before Kennedy was assassinated. And what's interesting about that is that we do know for sure that the assassination attempt uh, on de Gaulle were run by various right-wing elements within the French intelligence world and the French military. There's no question about that. And Talbot describes a lot of what seems to be the possible collaboration or knowledge of the assassination attempt on Dulles's part. And he certainly makes the case that this is the kind of thing you know, assassinating leaders in Western democracies, that's what we want to call them, was something that Alan Dulles would consider. And Dulles, of course, had a very obvious motive, uh, a personal motive, in the sense that Kennedy had fired him after the Bay of Pigs had been unsuccessful. And he also had the ideological motive of people within his circles, his class. And you can imagine it uh, just by thinking about the world right now, where many people listening to this might think of Barack Obama as actually fairly conservative and someone kind of like uh, Dwight Eisenhower or something like that. But to the U.S. right wing right now, Barack Obama is a secret Muslim who is trying to destroy the United States. And the same kind of people were around in 1963, and they thought that Kennedy was trying to destroy the United States and surrender to the Soviet Union and secretly a communist. And so uh, these people are kind of nuts, and uh, this is where I would differ from someone like Noam Chomsky, who talks about how, uh, you know, the policies of the Kennedy administration were pretty conservative and not that different from what the U.S. military and intelligence world may have wanted. And that is true. But what you have to understand is that the people in the intelligence world and the military world are not Noam Chomsky. And from their perspective, not doing 100% of what they want means that you're a traitor. And in their mind, uh, you know, are a secret communist or a secret Muslim today, what, you know, that's just the way they see the world because they're pretty insane. 
And so Talbot makes a very strong case that Alan Dulles and the people around him had the motive, they had certainly the experience that would allow them to arrange a political assassination. Uh, I don't know whether he, like, makes the case that we can say for sure that Alan Dulles did it. I, I don't think that anybody can make that case now. Uh, but he certainly uncovers a lot of suggestive information. And as, as you mentioned, one particularly odd part of, of that information is that after Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Dulles spent uh, that weekend at the CIA's uh, farm in northern Virginia doing who knows what. Yeah, uh, he, you can imagine an innocent explanation because the president just been killed and he'd been the head of the CIA, so you might want somebody like that around. But it's still pretty peculiar. Yeah, he, he repeatedly says northern Virginia, which is kind of strange if you've ever been to Virginia. The, the, the farm is actually in uh, southeastern Virginia near, near Williamsburg. Um, which, oh, okay. You know, well, and, then I, I'm, I'm going to blame my mistake just now on David Talbot. No, no, you should, because he repeatedly says that, and it's very strange, as if northern Virginia doesn't have enough to be ashamed of, including <laughs> Dulles Airport, you know. <laughs> but but, uh, it, but I, you know, I think you make a very good point, that, these, that there are people who view, I don't know if they are in the same positions of power within the U.S. government and CIA, but there certainly are people who view Barack Obama uh, in, in just the same way. It, it, although someone could make the case, well, then why haven't they killed him? Uh, but I think that uh, that the case for Kennedy having opposed the military-industrial complex spy uh, complex uh, significantly uh, is, is perhaps stronger than with um, most other, uh, you know, pseudo left-wing uh, socialist commie presidents uh, that we've seen in the United States. I mean, Kennedy really stood up uh, against them on a number of key points related to Cuba and Vietnam and Berlin and so forth. And and what came out for me in Talbot's book was the extent to which Kennedy also had a domestic agenda uh, of supporting labor rights uh, and opposing uh, plutocratic demands uh, that was just the sort of thing that was getting foreign presidents killed in those countries that have U.S. embassies in them. Uh, and right. I, I, wonder, I, I wonder if there isn't really a stronger case that Kennedy provided uh, motivation uh, to these guys than there is with, with someone like Obama. I think there is that case to be made, although I would also be a little bit leery of believing that David Talbot gives a complete picture of Kennedy, because Kennedy said a whole bunch of different things, and he did a whole bunch of different things. And the things that Talbot mentions are the ones that people like us would, would, would read about and say, hey, that's great, he's our kind of guy. But there's a lot of other things that Kennedy did that were uh, pretty dreadful, and those are generally left out of the book. But, it, you know, as I say, it doesn't really matter from the perspective of, of the motivation of the people from the military intelligence and intelligence world, because uh, they don't perceive the world very accurately, and not getting 100% of what they want is enough for them to want to kill you. 
Yeah. You, you pointed out to me recently, John, uh, an audio clip of a comment uh, from Senator Rockefeller uh, that I think goes to the point you made a few minutes ago about, you know, there just is no way uh, to fight back. The extent to which uh, this uh, spy military complex controls things. Let's let's just listen to that clip. Don't you understand the way intelligence works? Do you think that because I'm chairman of the Intelligence Committee that I just say, I want it, give it to me? They control it, all of it, all of it, all the time. I only get, and my committee only gets, what they want to give me. John Schwartz, what do you make of that comment? Yeah, so that is a clip from 2007 when a reporter named Charles Davis, who I think at the time, you know, was like 24, and had read... Uh, an article by Seymour Hirsch about how the Bush administration was trying to conduct uh, clandestine operations aimed at Iran. And Congress, according to Hirsch, didn't know anything about this, and this was really dangerous because it could have led to war between the United States and Iran right as uh, we were in the middle of the worst part of the Iraq War. And so Charles Davis went to the Capitol and asked Jay Rockefeller, what do you know about this? And Rockefeller gave him that amazing response, that just because he's the head of the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, that doesn't mean he knows anything about intelligence in the United States. And, and, and yet he knows enough uh, to denounce all sorts of crimes uh, and to have been involved with this uh, torture report that I, I saw on uh, a post on your website, theintercept.com recently, pointing out that no one has yet seen it and they may destroy it. Uh, we've, we've only seen the 500-page summary. Um, I mean, is there, is there a point in, in fighting these battles, in demanding to see that actual report, in demanding more transparency, in uh, demanding clean money in elections and, and sort of pushing back against corruption and secrecy? Or, or did you really mean it when you said that, you know, we're, we, we have no way to, to oppose this machine? Well, <clears throat> what I think these stories demonstrate is how hard it is to oppose these machines. But even with the Safari Club in the 1970s, like the fact that they had to do all of this off the books in the United States was not funding it was, from their perspective, a significant blow. And that means that everything that we can do isn't pointless. It's just a really, really big problem and uh, much bigger than they tell you in your high school history class. We've got just a, a minute left, and I wanted to cover so many other topics, but one of the, uh, one of the ideas that you've been promoting that I wish others were as well, uh, is this idea of cleaning up the money with small donations. Can you, can you describe that briefly? Yeah, so very quickly, the Supreme Court has said, you know, we can't keep the money of the top 1% out of the election. But there's now a bill in Congress that's sponsored actually by almost all the government, uh, by almost all the Democrats, called uh, Government by the People. It was written by John Sarbanes. He's a Maryland Democrat. And what it would do is provide matching funds for small donors. So if you're able to give $50 to a candidate, that's matched six to one. So that turns into $350 for the candidate. And that actually would change the dynamic 
enormously. I live in New York City, and it makes everything different in terms of uh, people running for mayor and people running for the city council. So please look that up, the Government by the People Act, uh, written by John Sarbanes. It's one of the most encouraging things about money in politics, right? Because New York locally has a similar setup going now? That's right. New York was the first place to have this kind of system, and it actually does make a very significant difference in who can run and who they listen to once they're in office. John Schwartz, uh, check him out at theintercept.com. Read what he writes and read the books that he writes about. John, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.